Hi, everyone, and welcome to Davos Dispatch. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. We just wrapped up a whirlwind week in Davos, and as always, it was exhilarating and frankly exhausting. Uh, but we're here today to give you a post-mortem on what went down, the good, the bad, the hopeful, even the meaningless. Before we get into that, I want to give a little background on what the conference actually is. Most of the time, Davos is a picturesque resort town. It's beloved by skiers and spa enthusiasts. Uh, but once a year, it fills to the brim with high-level delegates coming there for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. And they're there to, to really work through some of the stickiest problems confronting the world. The official Davos agenda this year had a lot in it about resilience, sustainability, and globalization. And so from our perspective at DevX, it connects a lot to the kinds of stories we're always covering. We even published a survey of humanitarian experts just before the, the conference, and it found that almost half of humanitarians think the sector needs to undergo wholesale change. That was something that came up a lot during our conversations in Davos. Uh, we published a piece as well on the role that tourism plays with humanitarian response. And it was like a, a tangible example of how the private sector partnerships often talked about at forums like this can work out in the real world. And I also moderated a session with the Wellcome Trust and the Rockefeller Foundation on how climate and health are converging and some opportunities to use digital innovation around that. And it really connected a lot to a piece that that we also published in advance of Davos about climate and health and, and how really that space is changing quickly. I should also mention DevX was actually a media partner of the World Economic Forum, and we co-hosted lots of our own events, uh, including with partners uh, like with Circle, with Microsoft, Verizon, and with the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. You know, a lot of the value that you get from going to Davos is not just the official sessions, it's what happens in between, the networking, the side conversations, it's the kind of place where you can casually chat with Tony Blair at a party, and then you can see Will I Am showing you his new AI app at an after party. It's that sort of place. And that's partly why it catches a lot of flack for symbolizing everything that's wrong with the world. The inequality, you know, people coming together in the Swiss Alps saying they're going to solve the world's problems at this fabulously expensive venue. Uh, but nonetheless, lots of things come out of these meetings. Samantha Power announced the EDGE Fund in a session I moderated. It's a new USAID initiative to promote public-private partnerships. There's big philanthropic organizations who join with business in the public sector to launch a $3 trillion climate action initiative. They're calling Giving to Amplify Earth Action. I'm told there's also some progress in a session I moderated called The Power of 100, where social entrepreneurs got connected with some global corporations that could help scale their impact. So, you know, as a news organization, there's hardly a more newsworthy place we could be. So what really happened in Davos? Well, I joined Vince Chadwick, who's our Brussels correspondent, and last week became our Davos correspondent on a Twitter spaces to try to break it all down now that we've both gotten some very badly needed sleep. Raj, uh, how are you feeling? Because last time I saw you, you'd lost your voice. <laughs> I had, and I think I barely have it back. Davos is an intense week, as you learned, Vince. Um, I, you know, I think I spoke nonstop for for four or five days and ended up losing my voice as a result. But boy, for for us as journalists, it's a target-rich environment. I mean, there are just so many of the people we're covering are there. So many of the issues we're interested in in global development are on the agenda, and so it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. What did you think? 
Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting moment for a journalist because in Brussels, I barely get to speak to any uh, top officials. You know, you have to speak to a spokesperson, you have to wait for weeks, months to get accepted, to speak to someone or people run into meetings and you can't catch people. And then suddenly in the conference center at Davos or even walking down the street, I mean, I ran into half the cabinet of uh, my native Australia uh, and um, uh, and in the Congress Centre itself, you'd regularly see heads of state. Um, uh, that's where I ran, I ran into um, Seth Berkeley of Gavi. Uh, the, the editor-in-chief of The Economist was kind of sitting there holding court with everyone. Uh, there were, I remember once there was um, a, a columnist from the Financial Times writing on legal notepaper in one corner, his column for the next day, and across the way was a famous um, battery magnate from the US worth billions of dollars who was reading the Financial Times very theatrically. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of in the midst of it all. And I think the challenge for us and what's probably interesting for our audience today is hey, what is the de- how, where does the development community fit into this? Um, because, you know, people have read uh, about Davos, people know about Davos um, and the, the critiques that are often thrown at it. And I think it's a really interesting challenge for the development community because it's such a rare opportunity to mingle with people in the private sector, particularly that you don't always get to speak to. I, I know I, in Brussels, I went to an event a few months ago about um, engaging the private sector and there were maybe a hundred people in the room and one person from the private sector. And in Davos, it's almost the opposite. There's a hundred people from the private sector and one person from global development or Oxfam or whatever it is. So it's not just a target rich environment for us as journalists. It's a target rich environment for often cash strapped development people who are looking um you know for for supporters for their for their issue um and i, I spoke to the the european commission's humanitarian aid chief um Yanis Lenacic, and in brussels at the moment there's not much money for humanitarian aid because so much of the external budget's going to ukraine so he's really on the hunt for emerging donors and for innovative models of financing for humanitarian aid so he came uh, and, he, you know, he he was, you know, I think it was his first time. He said, who should I meet? What should I do? You know, he was in learning mode as well. And certainly when I spoke to him, one of the most impressive things was he said, I'm here to learn. Um, and that wasn't the case for everyone. Some people are there to tell a story and some people are there to learn. And certainly he was there to try and see what he could gather. So I'll have a story out on that um, in a few days based on what he's um, he picked up from that. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. I thought I'd start, Raj. I I wanted to ask you um, how you saw the development community connecting with the private sector actors at Davos is famous for me. I, I saw uh, both things, uh, both sides. I saw conversations around localization and things happening in some of the uh, igloos in the ice village that, frankly, I would, I probably would have seen in Brussels. 
in terms of the people who were there. But then I saw really interesting conversations. Often, I had a, I remember thinking of one example on turbocharging development finance, where someone from Rabobank in the Netherlands piped up and said, "I can't do blended finance with the EU. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. You know, the, it's not working. You know." Um, and that was kind of the magic moment where you got private and, and public sector kind of talking together. So my question to you is, to what extent did you see two worlds and where did you see them overlapping in productive ways? Yeah, I think you know, I've been going there 10 years now and the, the worlds continue to get closer and closer together. Um, you know, the development issues themselves, you, you more and more agencies say, hey, we need to get private money in, as you talked about. So that's one reason. And the other reason is that a lot of the big corporations, and that's kind of what Davos is known for, is these really massive global corporates, they increasingly are mainstreaming their business toward development issues. Now, some of them are you know, highly controversial and in the fossil fuel space, et cetera. But more and more, you see the SDG pin on the lapel of, of the CEO of a company, right? And they know what these SDGs are, and they have a talking point ready about how their, how their business is starting to address these points and so I think that's another key component of what shifts at Davos is this, this idea that executives know, well, I'm going to be asked about on stage, maybe by a DevX reporter, I'm going to be asked about what we're doing on the SDGs. And we need to be able to talk about this. And so some of it can you know, easily lend itself to sort of greenwashing. But uh, a lot of it is businesses starting to ask themselves these harder questions about what are we actually doing in low and middle income countries? How are we engaging in blended finance? So you see more and more of that. Um, so I would say overall for our sector, for the global development community, we are now a fundamental part of what happens every year at the World Economic Forum annual meeting. It's not a sideshow. You know, the, the, the humanitarian agenda, that's kind of the, the in quotes, uh, is, is described as a component of what happens there. And when I, you know, was part of the forum years ago, there would be one session here or one session there. Now there's like a fully robust set of panels and conversations, a bunch of them, you know, DevX co-hosts with, with the WEF. So there, it's really more of a mainstream part of the conversation. So I think that's one big thing for people listening and to just know, those who don't go to Davos and don't have a sense of what's happening there, that, you know, big international NGOs, uh, some activists, uh, leaders in our space, they're on stage, they're in the conversations, they're in the rooms. This is, this is a, a big shift, I think, over the years. Um, and maybe just one other thing on this is, as there's more discussion about how to connect private sector with the very issues that are identified in the SDGs, you know, you're starting to see more happen in the deal-making space at Davos. So Davos is really famous for having the, the official agenda and then having you know, these chalets up in the hills where people gather in these private off-the-record meetings where they're doing deals, you know, investment bankers galore. Uh, at, at the World Economic Forum annual meeting. A lot of those deal-making sessions, a lot of those private meetings now include big philanthropies um, who are there trying to do these sorts of deals, trying to shape the global health space. Or they include some of the UN leaders or you know, people like Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, who's the, the World Trade Organization's leader and well-known in the development space, working on how to connect trade with the SDGs. So there, more and more you're seeing that. I think that's certainly the case this year. And, and we can get a little bit more maybe Vincent, to what some of the key takeaways are. But I just want people to be aware that that happens at Davos every year. The other thing I, I saw um, that could be interesting to, to our listeners was I saw the global development community really aligning on a sequence about what they expect to happen this year. And I think 
uh, as we, you know, there's a certain uh, rhythm to the year uh, in development, often around the spring meetings, annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. The other thing that people, I heard a lot, was people are really looking forward to Emmanuel Macron's summit in June about um, financing for the Global South. And I think he's planning a, a focus on special drawing rights. And people are starting to peg that summit really as a pivotal moment in the year to drive momentum. I mean, towards the end of last year, we saw tension around the leadership of the World Bank. Was David Malpass going to survive? I think if you'd asked anyone at Davos about that, they everyone now diverts that question to the roadmap for reform, which my colleague Shabtai has been covering really closely. And in the conversations I was in in development finance, when it came, a lot of people said, well, it's all about the MDBs now. This is the MDBs year. This is the year we're going to get it done. I think Yellen, um, Janet Yellen, the Treasury, Treasury Secretary, said just after Davos that she also is a moment to look at other MDBs, not just the World Bank, but certainly the, there was a huge focus on the World Bank and there was a, a big emphasis on uh, that um, Emmanuel Macron summit in June as a kind of um, uh, momentum multiplier towards uh, the World Bank having some really – uh, rigorous discussions and concrete proposals ready um, uh, at the annual meetings uh, at the end of the year. Uh, to, and so I, I think that was something that I hadn't appreciated quite going in, uh, how much everyone's kind of trying to get in line and push in the same direction when it comes to development finance this year and what a key role the French could play in that. Yeah, I, I wrote a little bit about this in my look ahead piece for, for 2023. And yeah, my, my feeling going into Davos was really confirmed by the conversations I had there, which is that all roads lead to the MDBs, that this is where everyone is focused. Um, and the reason is probably the economic backdrop that, you know, most of what people at Davos are talking about, because it's a very European and, and U.S. focused uh, meeting. And so a lot of the attention is on inflation. It's on, you know, what the WEF calls the cost of living crisis. It's on interest rates and what the Fed and the ECB are doing. So it's some kind of advanced economy problems, right? And when you consider what those problems mean for global development, the, the trickle-down effect is that the richest countries in the world, the donors, are going to have tighter budgets. They're going to have less money for development assistance. And as the climate keeps getting worse, as conflicts are getting worse, more and more development assistance budgets are being directed to humanitarian assistance. So I talked to a number of UN agency heads who say, yeah, this is a real challenge for us. We're seeing more and more of our focus on humanitarian. Their overall budgets are growing, but more and more of it's going to humanitarian. They have less and less funding that they can use for long-term development issues. So in that context, everybody starts looking at the MDBs because they say, well, that's the place we can go that maybe without even, without even increasing our paid in capital, without even adding any additional funds, Maybe there's ways, innovative ways to unlock more money out of the MDBs. So we're going to have this one-two punch coming up. You know, the, the first punch is the April spring meetings, uh, the World Bank and the IMF here in Washington, D.C. And then the second one is this Macron summit in June. And I think it was brilliantly designed, you know, by Macron and Mia Motley and the whole group that wants to reform the international financial structure to happen so soon after the spring meetings. Because I think if the spring meetings don't feel conclusive enough. If there isn't a sense that this roadmap is leading to really significant reform, I think the June summit of big donors will be a chance to send a clearer message. And then as you say, you know, up in October when there's the annual meetings of the, of the World Bank, there'll be a chance to say, okay, these big reforms have to happen. They have to happen now. They have to be deeper and more significant than maybe the banks themselves would want to see. 
So I think we're, we're setting up for a really consequential year for the MDBs as a whole and certainly for the leading MDB, the World Bank. Yeah, it's interesting what you say. I heard um, from some in the space that, you know, the if it, we're not talking about a capital increase, then we start to talk about balance sheet optimization and things like that. I was hearing, look, you know, bankers will say we're pretty optimized already. Thank you very much. You know, and so I wonder, given the focus on this, if we'll be able to avoid a capital increase, as you mentioned, I think that's going to be a really interesting one to watch. Um, I agree. And I've but, heard people on both sides of that. You know, I've heard some people coming from the MDBs who told me, uh, you know, this is kind of a pipe dream. You're not going to be able to to get more out of these banks without uh, increasing capital. And then there are others, including people who you know spent a long time working at the MDBs who say, no. That's not true. There's a lot more we can squeeze out of the current uh, balance sheets of these banks. So it's an interesting dynamic. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devex.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. Raj, one thing I was disappointed in, uh, and I'm not sure if you got this, was I heard a lot of stuff about de-risking. You know, like if only uh, you know we need we need people to take more risk, and we need to use aid budgets to to de-risk investors and stuff. I mean, that for me feels a little bit already old-fashioned, and perhaps not. <laughs> you know, we've been saying that I, I had the impression I've been hearing that for years, and I think that conversation could afford to be nuanced or moved on somehow. I'm not sure how you. You heard that, but it seems to be the go-to thing people say, but I didn't detect much nuance about how to do that or even any assessment about how it's going so far. Did you hear much on that? I, I did hear a lot on it, and I agree with you. It's an old conversation, but the reason to keep talking about it is because not much has been done on it. You know, and, and I think it connects right back to the MDB reform. Um, the idea is, can the multilateral development banks move from their traditional approach, which is providing large loans, to governments to build roads, to build bridges, to do you know, major uh, reforms. Can, can they move from that model to a model where instead they incentivize private money to go in and fund those roads, those bridges, those ports, those new healthcare systems? And part of that incentivizing, and this is basically blended finance, is de-risking. It's saying, hey, you know, we know you, you private uh, pension fund you're scared to go invest in this low-income country. You're worried about political risk. You're worried there'll be a government change. You won't get your money back. So we'll take some of that risk. We'll, we'll guarantee it. And we'll provide a first loss guarantee. And we'll provide some like lower cost of capital uh, to the government, which allows you to, to charge them a little bit higher cost. You can get a little more interest on, your, on the loan that you're going to make. So the, all of these things are what people want to see the MDBs go and do uh, and do more of. And so you're right, de-risking is an old discussion, and maybe it's frustrating to keep hearing about it. But I think part of the reason we keep hearing about it is because not that much has really changed in that space. It's, uh, it's relatively static. And, mm. and that's why this year is going to be so consequential for it. Um, 
what what did you hear and see that was new to you? What was something that you came away that you weren't even going in thinking to, you needed to be thinking about and that you took away from the WEF? Well, I guess I'll, I'll say one positive, one negative. So on the negative side, I thought I would hear more about pandemic preparedness. I thought I would hear more about shifts in the global health infrastructure. And I didn't hear that much about it, honestly. Um, I felt like you know, many prior World Economic Forum annual meetings have had really big announcements like the creation of Gavi or the creation of CEPI. Um, and I just felt like there wasn't as much coming out this year from global health, which is a little bit surprising given this is the first forum, you know, that's sort of post-pandemic. I mean, there was one back in May that was delayed to the spring because of the pandemic. But, um, you know, I just thought there would be more in that area. The, the positive one is a session that we actually co-hosted with the WEF on indigenous people and international trade. And it's, it's an example of where Davos can do something powerful um, that, that not every summit can do to take an issue like that, which I really wasn't familiar with. And we worked with the WEF on it and, and we were asked to be a part of it and basically you know, put the session together of trade ministers and indigenous leaders and talked about a burgeoning area, uh, which is you know, there's half a billion indigenous people in the world and indigenous economies and businesses are really connected to the future of sustainability. And there's a lot of products, like a product like Manuka honey, you know, as an example, a lot of sustainable products, organic products that come out of indigenous peoples. Um, and that there's now a new movement to say, well, hey, when big countries are negotiating trade deals, uh, are we asking our indigenous people about their role in this? Can we protect their intellectual property rights for their products? Can we make sure they're benefiting? when their products are being sold globally. Uh, and so I thought that was a really fascinating theme and one that's really relevant to our global development audience and that that was on the agenda at Davos this year. It's funny you mentioned global health because I ran into, um, I was going through security. It's funny the people you meet at security at Davos, but I was going through security and I thought the guy in front of me was another journalist in Brussels, um, Bruno Waterfield. And I said, oh, Bruno. And he turned around and he said, I'm not Bruno, um, I'm Adam. And it was uh, Adam Tews, the author of the, um, the polycrisis. Not that he's not right. a man who he's not, he didn't invent the term polycrisis, but he's certainly one who took it global. And uh, he said, "Oh, I need a I need a coffee." And I said, "Well, I know just the place." So I took him to the the UAE pavilion on the promenade, which had absolutely amazing coffee from a place called the Espresso Lab. If anyone wants to look it up, I'm a bit of a coffee nut, being from Melbourne, Australia, and I went there every day for my coffee. And he's a lovely guy making the best coffee in Davos. Anyway, so I took Adam Tews for a coffee, and then I said, "Let's have a quick chat about." how everyone's doing and dealing with the poly crisis. And we had a quick chat, which I posted on Twitter. And, you know, it was really striking what he said. He said, hey, China, what we, what's happening in China at the moment is arguably the most people ever getting infected at, at quicker at quickest time ever with COVID. And hardly anyone's talking about this at the place that's supposed to be committed to, you know, the, the greater good, you know, Davos. And so I really join what you say around that was a, a I felt like a bit of a blind spot this year. Obviously, there's issues around transparency about understanding what's going on in China. But, you know, I lived in the pandemic in Brussels where there was a big focus on building back better. And uh, I'm feeling now just a focus on building back and <laughs> a certain, a certain um, you know, short short memory and amnesia around about what we've all just lived through. Um, so it's interesting what you say about that. For, for me, I would nominate a session I went to on logistics with UNICEF. It was really interesting. And this was down in the, the ice village where... The, um, they were speaking with a real hard-nosed logistics giants, like um, I think DP World was on the was on the panel, 
these are huge logistics companies. And um, it was uh, moderated by uh, Richard Quest from CNN, who's like the consumer Davos moderator, but he's also very um, quick to interrupt people. And that was great too, because in Brussels, sometimes things can be a little bit sleepy. And what's great with Davos is you've got TV presenters plus private sector people, and you can just have some very fiery, quick, sharp exchanges because these are people that are used to having those kind of meetings, I guess. And it was quite refreshing to see that brought to bear on logistics and DP and um, UNICEF have teamed up a, a little bit about um, COVID and getting some of the things you, you, UNICEF needed um, to, to ship um, prioritised. And there was a question that put to the, the head of logistics, I think, from DP World. They said, okay, well, if you've got three ships out there and one of them needs has humanitarian supplies, which one's getting in first? And he basically said, well, we're not we're not priority we can't give them priority ahead of our other customers and that was a really interesting debate and it's probably not for nothing that the session happened and unicef you know put it on the agenda but that's something that i was i must admit less uh, aware of but it actually must be a huge issue in the practic- practical side of humanitarian aid um and uh, sure enough as is often the case with, with the wef you look back and they've done some work on it they've done a charter on this some companies have signed up some haven't um so, you know, it was, it was quite interesting to me, actually, how the WEF has often got great bodies of work and people have been thinking about these things for years. And so, you know, and I go back to the example of Commissioner Lenacic on the private sector and humanitarian aid. The WEF's also got a big uh, document looking at all of the innovative financing models for humanitarian aid. So those were really fortuitous experiences for me, um, which uh, will inform my, my coverage going forward. Another theme that I detected towards the end of the week was on climate was obviously omnipresent, but there was also a kind of uh, an awareness, I think, that the global north needs to be careful about perceptions of green protectionism, and this was came across in two ways. In a session on development finance, it came across with a discussion about natural gas and the role of uh, development banks in investing in natural gas. Uh, which has obviously been that focus has been sharpened by the war in Ukraine. And certainly in Brussels, I'm hearing people saying, okay, well, EIB says they're not going to invest in natural gas, but times change. And guess what? You're going to have to because, you know, this is an imperfect world and we, we need to support these uh, support these countries. And also with EBRD, which is having a, um energy re- review this year with energy policy. So that's one to really watch. And the other one is the carbon border adjustment mechanism where the EU is saying we're going to impose a tariff on um, high carbon goods coming into the EU. And it was quite interesting to hear Ngozi, but also Michael Froman, um, the former US trade representative, saying, you know, careful careful on, on this and the message that it sends <laughs> to, the, to the rest of the world, uh, you, Europe, wanting to be, um, you know, pursue the European Green Deal. Um, it it doesn't it doesn't uh, land very well in the rest of the world when um, you say you're not going to invest in natural gas, but also you're going to impose tariffs on high carbon goods when countries perhaps don't have any alternative. So that was something that um, also will you know inform my conversations next week. The European Investment Bank's having its annual results meeting, um, and I think that was an interesting thread and a bit of self awareness, I guess, coming up from the Davos participants that they needed to to be mindful of how their green messaging was landing in the rest of the world. Yeah, we, we hosted a couple of private sessions during the week. We had one with some humanitarian leaders at dinner and just informal dinner. We had an African leader there who made a very similar point and said, look, we're investing in natural gas projects and projects that include um, you know, some renewable components, but also some fossil fuels. And 
you know, the rest of these people here at Davos, they just don't get it. Uh, and then I, we had another session, kind of a humanitarian happy hour that we throw every year. Uh, we get together a lot of the humanitarian development leaders who are, who are Davos uh, for just an informal drink. And, and another African leader at that session was talking to me and said something really similar. And it just feels like, you know, the conversation at the WEF often misses the point of the realities they're dealing with and says, no, we're, we're going to keep investing in fossil fuels in a lot of our countries. We have no choice. Uh, you know, this is going to be a long transition for us. We have energy poverty. So it's really interesting to hear the dichotomous views on this point. Um, and, and you're right, climate is kind of maybe the underlying theme across everything you talk about there. Uh, there are even people at the forum talking to me saying, like a week before we all landed there in Davos, that, hey, the, 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 the Alps, you know, where, where Davos is situated, they're, they're green. There's no snow. Uh, fortunately, by the time we arrived, the snow had started falling. But it was kind of a stark visual reminder for people that, hey, the, the climate really is shifting rapidly. And this underlies every other topic we might want to talk about is just how quickly the world is, is shifting. Um, well, you know, one other thing just worth raising is you talked a little bit about humanitarian and logistics. You know, we did a survey um, at DevX in advance of Davos to, to really ask our audience, especially our audience of humanitarian experts, what do they think about the current state of affairs in the humanitarian space. And we had this kind of shocking result, which 48% of the people we interviewed, we interviewed about 500 people, 48% said they think the humanitarian sector needs a fundamental transformation. Um, not like just some reforms and some improvements, but a fundamental shift in the way it's structured, and the way it works. And I raised that with many humanitarian leaders in Davos and, and tried to get their take on it. And I would say generally, even the people who are in the space, like even people working at some of the UN agencies feel similarly. Now, some, you know, I talked to one UN agency head who didn't agree with that and thought, no, we're on the right track and we need to just make some, you know, some more modest reforms. But, but there is a set, there's a growing palpable sense that the humanitarian sector itself is kind of stretched to its limits um, and that something has to give. And, and we need a really different conversation about what the humanitarian space ought to look like in the future. And there was one session I was in and actually saw Michael Fay, um, you know, one of the founders of Give Directly, the executive chairman there. And he, he and I ended up bumping to each other multiple times during the week. Um, and he was there talking about this, you know, billion dollars that Give Directly has now provided, you know, straight to people living in extreme poverty and using that as just an example of, you know, we, we really ought to shake things up when we can do this and we can directly fund people we ought to be thinking about that as a, a really competitive alternative to some of these more bureaucratic institutions that, that have very high overheads and that have a lot of complexity. Instead of just ramping up the traditional space, let's look at some of these, these more disruptive alternatives. So that was another theme that I kept hearing a lot during the week. It's interesting. Um, so, Raj, I wanted to end by asking uh, you about how you see the humanitarian and development community's engagement with Davos. I mean, I heard from a lot of people, okay, Macron can't come because he's having a pension debate and it's a bad look to be at Davos or Rishi Shunak is, a, you know, known as, you know, being a famously wealthy. He can't come because it's not a good look at the moment and with the problems with the NHS. And even among the Oxfams who were there, you know, there was, you know, it's a, it's a decision every year to whether to be there or not. I mean, I'm curious as someone uh, who's in the humanitarian space you are who knows the WEF and, uh, for, for 10 years, how do you see this dynamic evolving? Are we just stuck in a dynamic where every year we're going to have these debates about whether humanitarians should be there or not? 
Um, or is there a way we can arrive at a more productive dynamic between the, you know, the forces of enterprise and the, the kind of humanitarian development people that we're more familiar with um, in our daily work? I think it is becoming more productive year after year. I think there's more acknowledgement and awareness that look, that the world is deeply unequal. There are, you know, more than 2000 billionaires. They do fly around in private jets and yeah, many of them descend on Davos in those private jets. And it's just like crazy to imagine we're talking about global poverty and hunger and, and all of this is happening at the same time in this sort of elite gathering. I think you can hold that idea and at the same time say, boy, we ought, we ought to use this opportunity. You know, we ought to use it for good. Uh, and I think, I think people have come more and more around that. So in, in the decade I've been going there, I see more philanthropic leaders, more humanitarian leaders, more development leaders. And, you know, they're there and they sort of hold their nose a little bit at some of the things they don't like or agree with or just the realities of the world that are very apparent in a place like the, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. But they see all the, all the productive things you can do with it. Yeah. So I think the, the caveats all have to be given. Like we give the caveats all the time. When people say, why do you go there? Um, and, and certainly when I talk to humanitarian NGO leaders, they, they often give me those caveats, you know, in the advance of an interview or something. But, yeah, we need to remember the caveats. We need to remember how crazy the situation is. Um, but there is something about the gathering of that much global power, that many decision makers, that creates a real opportunity. And if you can get something on the agenda there, if you can push people to pay attention to an issue there, it can have really positive consequences. So it's no panacea, um, and, I, and I completely respect those of my colleagues. I have a whole bunch of friends in, in the development space who tell me, like, no, I'd never go there. Uh, you know, going to the WEF annual meeting would be my worst nightmare, I've heard people tell me. I completely respect that opinion. I get it. I, I, I don't begrudge them one bit. But, but I see, too, why more and more people from our space are, are attending and are a part of it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the one thing I heard from people in, in our um, sector was, you just can't imagine how productive I've been. <laughs> I had people tell me they had 14 meetings in a day. I had people tell me, you know, that they got three months worth of work done in one week. Um, uh, and then I had exactly people biting their tongue saying, okay, there's some of the extremes here that perhaps we could do without. Um, and it, it was a bit bewildering even even to them. Uh, but it was certainly a, a chance to, to influence uh, some pretty powerful people and you can see why that's very interesting and in the case of Oxfam you know the Spanish Prime Minister did mention their report in his speech and um, you know use it as a real linchpin of his, his speech and stuff so that was they certainly viewed that as a as a win for their work on inequality which they do each year okay well Raj thanks it's it was it's funny this is probably the most time you and I have spent discussing Davos even though we spent a week together there because it was so intense so we barely saw each other in the in the week there but I'm glad you're, you're healthy again and it was really interesting to to catch up on on some of yeah. your insights this was great this is great man thanks hey you you got to experience it for the first time how insane that week is it's no sleep it's hundreds of meetings it's session after session but but uh, i think we got a lot out of it and I, i'm really proud of some of the reporting we did um, and i hope it was useful to our audience around the world exactly well thanks for tuning in everyone um, if you don't already follow vince on twitter at, at vchadw and you can follow me at raj underscore devx I'm sure you're subscribed to our newsletters, but if you want to see where they are and maybe you're not, check out the description of the podcast. We've got them all linked there. Thanks again for joining us. This has been Davos Dispatch. Dispatch.